He paid it all upon the cross, no longer bound by sin or with the eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all. Hello and welcome back to the Been There, Read That podcast. In this week's episode, we are sharing a sermon that I, Nathan Batty, presented at the Rockville Road Church of Christ in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I preach, on May 29th, 2022. We hope that you enjoy it and find the material helpful. God bless. Very thankful for everyone's presence here this morning. As was noted, we have several visitors and we're very thankful for your presence today. We have a number of our own that are traveling. I know Logan and Audrey are down in Texas. Uh, Danny and Carol are in Kentucky, I understand. Uh, a lot of the Schaefers are in Richmond this weekend. We may have some others that are traveling as well. We're very thankful for your presence. We're going to talk this morning about the term except for fornication that's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. But before going there, I want to set our thoughts by going to Matthew chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 13. I want to find there a statement that is programmatic for the gospel of Matthew as a whole. It's a really important key to understanding what Matthew is doing and how he's doing it. This statement comes at the end of what's called the parabolic discourse. Uh, Jesus has spoken seven parables here, and now he's going to make this kind of summation statement. Some consider it a parable, some just consider it a conclusion. But listen carefully to what he says, Matthew chapter 13, verse 51. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Okay? What Jesus is doing is he is setting himself up in the Gospel of Matthew as the great teacher. That's one of the titles that belongs to him. That's one of the functions that he fills throughout the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospels generally. And he is instructing his disciples so that they can act as scribes in the kingdom. Scribes are the ones who take the teachings of Moses or the teachings of the great teacher and they treasure them. They protect them, they guard them so that they are not corrupted, and they subsequently teach them to coming generations. He says there that one of the roles of the scribes is to reach into their their treasury. Uh, Contextually, that would be the treasury of Scripture that they hold, and to bring out of it things both old and new. I would argue that what Jesus is doing in his ministry as he's going about, as he is teaching as the master teacher is he is reaching into the treasury of scriptures, which at this time included all the Old Testament, and he is bringing out of there things old as well as things new. So as you go through the Gospel of Matthew and you listen to the teachings of Jesus, whether we're talking about parables, or you're seeing his miracles, or you see his teaching like we're about to look at in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you need to ask this fundamental question, what's new and what's old? If we will ask that question, it will go a long way to helping unpack difficult passages in Scripture, especially the Gospels. What is new and what is old? Now, with that concept of new and old in mind, look at Matthew chapter 5, 
and verse 31. I'd invite you to open up to this passage. I'm going to use PowerPoint today. I already forgot to use it once. But as we have these passages up here, we're going to go to Matthew 5, and we're going to look at this passage in context. There's a lot that's connected with it, and we need to pay attention to the contextual meaning of the passage. I'm going to read from the King James, which I don't often do, because I think it does a better job in this passage. There the Bible says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. What's new and what's old about this passage? He says, it hath been said. And the New King James Version says, you have heard that it was said. That's the old. You can go and you can read this. This is what the old law taught. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. What's he doing there? This is going to be something new. To understand contextually what he's saying, we have to understand both what is old and what is new. We want to go through that this morning. Before we go any further, though, we have an awesome privilege to approach our Heavenly Father, to thank Him for the gift of His Son, which we are here to remember today, to also thank Him for His Scripture and this opportunity for worship. Let's go to God in prayer at this time. Let's get started this morning. I want to talk just briefly about three critical concepts that we have to keep in mind as we discuss this topic moving forward today. The first is, words have meanings. And we can't redefine terms just however we want to. Whenever we're talking about biblical terms, we have to use biblical definitions of those terms and understand how the Bible writers use them. This is really important when we talk about sexual sin because there is much uh, disagreement, there is much confusion on the topic because terms have often been changed and altered. And we have to ask, what does the Bible say and what does the Bible mean when it says? Number two, it's important that when we discuss sins of a sexual nature, we use the proper biblical terminology in order to avoid many confusions that exist in this world. Um, a lot of error is taught because language is destroyed and non-biblical concepts are brought into the discussion to lead a biblical discussion. You can't have that. And then thirdly, it's important to clarify up front that there are many sins that can be committed between a husband and a wife that do not rest as the grounds for divorce. Now that may seem odd, but it's true. There are many things in which a husband or a wife can sin and yet not have grounds for divorce. In Matthew chapter 5 here, where we read just a moment ago, this is the only exception that Christ gave for divorce in a situation where a Christian is married to a Christian. Let's read it again. It hath been said, whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put his, away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Save for the cause of fornication. Whenever we're talking about divorce and remarriage concepts, we're not really talking about 
remarriage today, but we are talking about the, the cause or the exception for divorce. The term that is very important for us to notice is this term fornication. It comes from the Greek word pornia, which is defined as illicit sexual intercourse. Now, that's the term that is being used here. Uh, In some translations, it's translated fornication, as in the King James Version. In some, it's translated as sexual immorality. I believe fornication is a better translation of this because it emphasizes what's at stake, that is, illicit sexual intercourse. It's not talking uh, generically about the morality nature of sin. It's talking about the physical nature of sin, illicit sexual intercourse. Um, There are some sexual acts that that do not meet this definition. What I mean by this is, in order for pornia to be under consideration, you have to have two physical bodies physically interacting with one another in order to have fornication committed or pornia committed. Now, fornication is a broad term that includes all kinds of illicit sexual intercourse in which two physical bodies interact. For example, fornication would include adultery. It would include homosexuality, sodomy, pedophilia, necromancy, bestiality, rape, and other sins in which you have illicit sexual intercourse occurring. That's really important whenever we talk about fornication as being the grounds for which one can scripturally divorce their spouse, we have to understand that the exception Christ gave was that of instances where illicit sexual intercourse has occurred. Now, I'll make this note. The term fornication or pornia is used in some passages in the Bible in a metaphorical sense. Okay? When the Bible uses a term in a metaphorical or a figurative sense, the concept, the actual concept is in view, and it's being used as an illustration within the metaphor. For instance, in the Old Testament, this, this term, or the Hebrew equivalent of this term, is used to speak of Israel fornicating or harloting against God. In other words, they were joined unto idols. They didn't have illicit sexual intercourse with idols, but what's saying is they are having a relationship in this idolatry that uh, breaks the bond of their betrothal to God. But when the literal term is in view, and it is here in Matthew chapter 5, the concept is physical illicit sexual intercourse. Now... How do we know this? I want to share with you two Bible passages that show us this is what's in view. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. What's it saying here? It's not good for a man to... Touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid, in Greek, pornia, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. What's this saying? If a man touches a woman to whom he is not married, he is guilty of pornia. 
Pornia requires touch. That's what Paul is getting at. Another passage for you, back up a chapter to chapter 6, verse 15. Again, I'm reading. This is, I'm going to blend a little bit of King James and New King James, and it's noted here in the quotation. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee pornia. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits pornia or fornication sins against his own body. When, when a man is joined unto a harlot, he becomes one body with her through the flesh. And the Bible is commanding that they flee fornication or flee pornia. It is absolutely wrong, sinful. It is pornia to have illicit sexual intercourse with a person to whom you are not married. Both 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, and 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 18, are demanding that physical bodies must be involved, and it is defining fornication as, as such acts. Fornication within marriage is the only action that God allows for a scriptural divorce and remarriage. If fornication has not been committed, divorce is sinful, and God will judge the divorcee. Now, what I'm about to say may seem kind of odd, but I want you to chew this over, and we're going to talk about this a little bit. Not all sexual sin allows for divorce. Not all sexual sin falls under the category of pornia. I'll give you two examples. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we were, verses 1 through 6. Listen. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto, his, unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise, also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also the husband hath not power of his body, but the wife. Now, starting from the beginning, he's saying it's not good for a man to touch a woman. And he's making a distinction here between thinking and touching. It's not good to touch a woman that you are not married to. Fornication is thereby defined as touching a woman. Number two, to avoid fornication, illicit sexual intercourse. Let a man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. This is God's solution. This is sanctioned in marriage. You have to have your own spouse. When you get married, he's teaching here that your body no longer belongs to you. You have given it to your spouse. The two shall become one flesh. Listen, listen again to that. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. When you get married, you are giving yourself entirely to your spouse. We have to recognize that concept. 
When we make our vows, are we going to live up to our vows? He gives an exception. He goes on to say, uh, I thought I had this on the slide. Let me, let me turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 6. Uh, Verse 5, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen, he's saying, you make this commitment that you will not deprive one another. The only exception to that rule is when you by consent, when you both agree that for a period you will set yourself aside for the sake of of prayer and fasting. And then there is agreement that you will come back together again so that you are not tempted by the devil. Okay? God's protection for marriage is the giving of one another to, them, to each other. The consent that's under consideration is mutual consent. Okay? Think about what he's saying here. The only exception to why a husband and wife can deny each other for a time is for prayer and fasting and with a commitment to come back together again that they may not be tempted. If husbands and wives violate this passage, they are committing a sin that is of a sexual nature And yet it is not grounds for divorce. Now think about that. When a husband or wife violates this passage, they have committed sin. It is of a sexual nature, but it is not grounds for divorce. Here's a concept we have to get into our minds. When we get married and we make vows to God, we are are vowing, we are swearing to be one. And we do not separate. The concept of trial separation is unscriptural. The concept here is withholding by consent for a time for prayer and fasting and then coming back together again. In Mark chapter 10 verse 9, speaking in the context of marriage, the Lord said this, What God has joined together, let no man separate. It is sinful to separate. Trial separation is the practicing of divorce, and divorce on grounds other than fornication or pernia is forbidden by God. When couples separate and they disobey 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and sexual temptation does enter in, and one does sin, both share in the guilt that has occurred because they have both been in violation of the passage. Now, I want you to think about for a moment what people are saying when they choose to separate for reasons other than pornia. You have a couple that has come before God and witnesses, and they have sworn, till death do us part, I will remain faithful to this spouse, and I will love my spouse. We usually have in our vows something to the effect of love and cherish. You know what you're saying when you break that vow? 
for reasons other than pornia? You're saying, I refuse to love my spouse. That's the same as saying I hate my spouse. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. If you have sworn to love your spouse, but you refuse to demonstrate love, and love being an action, not just an emotion, an action, when you refuse to love them as you have sworn to do, you do not love God who has joined that union. This ought to warn us that we need to be careful whom we marry. Be very careful whom we marry. A lot of times people don't think about getting married any more than they do about what kind of clothes they're going to put on when they get up. They don't think it through. They don't understand all the consequences because our world has decided divorce does not matter. God does not care. And you can get divorced as many times or as frequently as you want to whenever you feel like it. Yet God has sanctioned marriage and he has also legislated the grounds for divorce. What God has joined together, let not man separate. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of lack of self-control. He's saying there that when this passage is ignored and sexual temptation does enter in, there is mutual guilt. This is not a new concept. Whenever you go over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32, the Bible says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for reasons, except a pornia, sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. What's he saying there? When you tell your spouse, I don't love you anymore, I am divorcing you, you have broken your vow, what's going to happen? Speaking mainly of the woman here, because the woman, especially in ancient culture, was the one who had less societal status. She was the one that suffered more. What's going to happen to a woman who her husband just hates her and he turns her out? Well, she's going to be destitute. What's she going to do? She's probably going to go out looking for another husband to whom she has no right to get married. This passage is saying when you just send your wife out and divorce her and she goes and finds somebody else, you share in her sin because you helped put her in this position. That's the same concept that is being taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5 when it comes to denying one another for reasons other than prayer and fasting for a time and committing to come back together again so that temptation does not occur. I want to make a side point here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But do we believe what Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 teaches? For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Do we believe that God hates divorce? That he hates separation? Do we believe that? I think we've come to a place as a people and society where we don't think God actually hates divorce. He hates remarriage. 
Now he, I agree, he hates remarriage when there is not grounds for it, but he also hates divorce. He hates it when people break their vows. 1 Corinthians 7 is an example of a sin of a sexual nature that can and does occur in marriages, but is not grounds for divorce. Let me give you a second example of such a sin. Matthew chapter 27, verse 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is a difficult passage. And typically what we do is we come to this passage and we look at this kind of in isolation and we say, what he's saying here is that lust is equal to adultery. I want to ask, is that what the passage is saying and what's being taught in context? I want you to back up to chapter 5, verse 21. Notice what is being said here. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, I want you to note how this passage begins. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. This is that old and new concept that we talked about in the introduction. So we have to ask the question, what's old, what's new? What's old? You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. You can go and you can read that throughout the Old Testament. What's new? But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. What's new about that statement? Under the old law, was it not wrong to be angry at a person without cause? Yes, it was. It has always been wrong to be angry at a brother or anybody without cause. I'll give you the example. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Who's he angry at? He's angry at Abel. And he's also angry at God, without a cause. The Bible goes on, so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What happens in the story? Cain's anger reaches a point where it turns into the action of murder. What happens when Cain murders Abel? He is cursed by God and he has a mark placed upon him and he's sent out to wander the earth for the rest of his life. I want you to notice the penalty for committing the act of murder was different than the penalty for being angry without cause. Now neither one was right, 
But the penalty that God invoked was different. This is the case throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was not okay to be, to be angry, but there was a different penalty for being angry and for murdering somebody. What's Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5 that is new? He's saying there, and whoever says, uh, excuse me, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. He's saying God will prosecute, he will penalize angry people and murderers the same on the day of judgment. Now that ought to give us pause. It ought to give us pause. You know, somebody might think, well, you know, yeah, I get angry, but I don't murder. And so I'm a better person than the murderer. That's not actually the case. It's saying that both are sin and both will equally meet the judgment of God. Now, within this passage, it says, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. That phrase, without a cause, is in italics in most translations because there are textual variants here. I believe that belongs in the text. I believe that is correct. And there's other passages that teach this. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, the Bible speaks of being angry and not sinning. God himself gets angry sometimes. You know what God does not do? He does not get angry without a cause. When God gets angry, it's because sin has been committed. There is a cause for it. But he does not just get angry at people without a cause. I want you to listen to this passage in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's exactly what Matthew 5 is saying. Instead of using the term angry without a cause, he says hate. That's what he's talking about. That's what Cain was guilty of. He wasn't just angry. He was hateful. It's the same concept. And here again, anger is related directly to murder, though the two sins are somewhat distinguished. It's not coincidental that Cain was first angry and then he murdered. Notice what the Bible goes on to teach in Matthew chapter 5, following this statement, beginning verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. Here's the process for resolving hate between brethren when you know somebody is angry at you. This would include your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your brother and sister at church, your neighbor. What's the solution? You know somebody's angry at you. They hate you. Go and seek to be reconciled to them before you come and offer your offer at the altar. What's he saying? Get cleared up with your brother before you come to worship. That's a concept that we don't think about. That's a concept that gets ignored. And people end up coming to worship angry with their brethren. I'll make a distinction here. That is the solution to when someone's angry. That's what we must do. That's not optional. It's a must. 
That's not how we deal with murderers. If Chance murders Andy, I'm not going to go over to him and talk to him and say, Ah, brother, you need to go up and make a confession about this. I'm going to call the cops, and the cops are going to show up at Chance's door, and they're going to take him to prison, and he's going away to prison for a long time. That's what Romans chapter 13 teaches. God has set the authorities in place to deal with wicked men, with murderers. You do not take murderers before the church. You take them before the council. But you do take angry people before the church. 1 Corinthians 6 is teaching it is sinful to take angry people before the council. You bring them before the church. Here's what's important about this in Matthew 5. God will judge angry people and murderers the same on the day of judgment. They will both be lost in hell forever. Those two sins are directly related to one another, yet they must remain distinct in how the church deals with them. That's a critical concept for us. They are related to each other, as a seed is related to a plant. Anger is the seed that gets planted. When it blossoms and grows and becomes full grown, it results in murder. You don't murder people that you're not angry with. The anger comes first, and then it spills over into the action of murder. This is what I would call the seed deed principle. Anger is the seed that results in the action or the deed of murder. It's not just wrong to commit the action of murder, it's also wrong to harbor the seed of anger. Both must be recognized, their relationship to one another must be recognized, and they both must be dealt with. The seed deed principle. Relationship yet distinction. That's the takeaway. Now, notice Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said to those old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now I would note that the last three words there are important. He has committed adultery in his heart. That distinguishes adultery in the flesh and adultery in the heart. That's a big distinction, and we'll talk about that some as we go along. But we must recognize the relationship between lust and adultery that we recognize between anger and murder. There is relationship, yet some distinction. Just as anger is the seed that results in the deed of murder, so lust is the seed that results in the deed of adultery. Now, with those thoughts in mind, I want to ask you the question, what's old and what's new? What's old? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. You can go and you can look that up and you can read that or read it. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. He who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, they shall surely be put to death. The death penalty was invoked with adultery in the Old Testament. You put them to death. Divorce was not granted in the Old Testament when adultery was in play. You had the death penalty. Then Jesus says, But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's new about that statement? Was it okay to lust after women in the Old Testament? 
The answer is no. I'll share with you two passages. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. You cannot lust after your neighbor's wife. That was forbidden. Also, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought, bought, brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. People have argued, under the Old Testament, it was okay to lust, but you can't commit adultery. That's wrong. It was wrong to commit adultery, and it was also wrong to lust. What was different, though? In the Old Testament, adultery got the death penalty, and lust did not. What's Jesus saying in Matthew 5? God's going to judge lust and adultery on the day of judgment the same. There is relationship between the two, and neither one is acceptable. It's interesting, we often associate adultery with married people. I do believe that's the general concept. But in Matthew 5 it says, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in her heart. Whoever involves single people. So if the action involves a whoever, why does he use the term adultery rather than the generic form of fornication? Because under the old law, adultery brought with it the death penalty. Fornication did not at all times. If a single man slept with a single girl before they got married, you didn't take them out both and kill them. You made them get married. Or he had to pay the bride price for having humbled her, the Bible says. But every case where an adulterer was caught, you put them to death. He's saying this, we think about the death penalty with adultery, and we think, whoa, I don't want to commit that. He's saying, do not lust either. The passage in Matthew 5 regarding lust and adultery, is teaching that God will punish both in the same way. Just as a disciple, uh, just as, and I want you to think about this concept, just as we discipline murderers or deal with them differently than we do angry people, so we deal with adulterers differently than we do lustful people. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. He follows up this statement about lust and adultery, and he says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it far from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Here's two categories of sins that both have to be dealt with. Sins of the eye, sins of the hand. With the eye we see and we think, with the hand we do. If you have an eye problem, deal with your eye. If you have a hand problem, deal with your hand problem. That's the concept here. The eye is where lust comes in and the seed is planted that when full grown will will consummate in adultery... The deed or the hand principle. It's not okay just to quit doing the deed. You must also quit thinking the thoughts. There is relation between lust and adultery. 
And yet there is distinction as well. Notice what the Bible says, Matthew 15, verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Think about that. From the heart, you don't just start doing these things. They begin in the heart. They begin with the seed, which when full grown becomes the deed of murder and adultery. There they are paired up together again and distinguished from fornication. Fornication, or pernia, is a sin of the hand. It requires touch. It is forbidden at all times, and God will judge all fornicators. Lust is a sin of the eye. It is a sin, and God will judge those who participate in lust. Now, just as we distinguish between anger and murderers and how we deal with them, so we must distinguish between lustful people and adulterers. I'll give this illustration. I hope, hope they don't mind. If I saw Chance, I'm going to pick on him today. If I saw Chance just getting angry, without cause, he's just without provocation, he just snaps on Andy and he starts railing on her. And I witness that happen and I leave and I go down to hold a meeting like I was, last week I was down in Tennessee. Say I'd gone down to Tennessee and the brother came up to me and they said, Hey Nathan, how's it going? I said, Oh, it's going okay. And they said, Well, how's the work back home going? And I say, Terrible. Man, we got a case of murder on our hands. And I just left it at that. Would that leave false impressions? Yeah. They would think, whoa, we hadn't had a case of murder on our hands. I'm thankful for that. If they said that and I responded, well, we've had about three cases of murder here lately. They think, what is going on in Indianapolis? We have to recognize that anger leads to murder, but we prosecute or we deal with murderers differently than we do angry people. If it's wrong to call somebody that gets upset a murderer, is it okay to call someone an adulterer or a cheater if they have not committed the sin of pornia? Food for thought. Notice how it goes on in context to deal with the passages we introduced at first. Matthew 5, 31. It hath been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. I ask the question again, what's old and what's new? What's old? In the cases in the Old Testament, divorce was allowable. All you had to do was give a writing of divorcement. That's what the old law taught except for in cases where fornication was present, and there you don't give writings of divorce, you hand them over and they are executed. Okay? That's the old concept. But in the Old Testament, you can divorce for any reason, as long as you give a certificate of divorce. Yet here Jesus is saying, but I say to you, he's giving something new, and he's teaching that you cannot now divorce your spouse for any reason, except when there is pornia or fornication Present. Now that's a radical changing of the law. Notice what has changed though. Neither the definition of fornication nor the process of divorce has changed. What has changed is 
the penalty of fornication within marriage and when God allows divorce to occur. That's really important to grasp. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus is no longer talking about the cause of fornication and how God views it. He's speaking about the reality of fornication within marriage and how the church is supposed to guard marriage. The discussion about lust's connection to adultery is talking about why people commit adultery. When he's talking here in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, he is clarifying what must be present and required in order for a divorce to occur and be sanctioned by God. If pornaya, which is defined as illicit sexual intercourse, is not present, there is not cause for divorce. We have to recognize, Matthew 5.31, that pornaya fornication is the only exception God gave for divorce between Christians. I don't make that rule. God's the one that made the rule. We must recognize that God hates divorce. It is not acceptable, and only for fornication is divorce to be recognized and sanctioned. I want to close by reading a passage in Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Pause there. And imitate Christ and God is this concept here. Imitate God. What type of love does God demonstrate? Sacrificial love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you reckon God felt good when he gave his son? And by that I mean, do you think he felt happy? Do you think God was smiling when Christ was crucified? Not on your life. He demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Love is an action and love must be sacrificial. We have to sacrifice in demonstrating love. When we are required by God to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, to love our brethren, to love our spouse. That requires that we perform actions of love toward them unconditionally. He did not tell us, love your enemy if your enemy loves you. Why are they your enemy? They're your enemy because they hate you. And yet you still must love them. That means you must do good to them, even though they hate you. To love your brethren, your neighbor, your spouse means you unconditionally, you will always do what's right and love them sacrificially as God has loved us. He continues, having talked about the sacrificial love, he says this, but fornication, that's pornaya, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints, 
neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather give, giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. All those sins that he lists out, you know what's at the root of them? Selfishness. The seed of selfishness gives place to these type of actions. Upon whom the wrath of God comes to disobedient sons. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. I hope that you will take these thoughts, that you will consider them in light of God's Word and how we apply them within the church and within our marriages. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with the eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.